Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to be back with you all. Um, let's uh, open our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us to, to worship you, to find our rest in you, to, to cease our, our labors, to cease our uh, worldly cares, some of which are legitimate, uh, some of which we need to uh, continue to detangle from. Uh, and yet this day is a day that you have, you have called us and you, like a, like a lover to, to his bride, uh, calls us away to spend time with you. To, uh, to get away from distraction and to um, intensify the relationship that we have with you. Thank you for, uh, for this, this gift of the Sabbath. And I pray that as we enter the Sabbath today, um, we, we already have, and yet as we enter the, the, the time of corporate gathering and worship uh, and, we, and we study uh, truths from your word together, that you would help us to, uh, to truly rest in you, to uh, clear our minds, not of everything, but clear <clears throat> our minds of what may be, uh, what may be heavy on our hearts uh, from, from the week, uh, that, we would, that we would not ignore them, but that we would magnify you uh, in light of them and despite them. Uh, Lord, especially as we, as we discuss today uh, heavy topics, topics that can be, that can be difficult uh, and are certainly easy to, to think about in the abstract, and yet as soon as you scratch below the surface, uh, uh, they, can be, they can be very challenging. I pray that you would, uh, that you would let the truths of your word uh, wash over us and that we would, uh, that we would find comfort in Jesus Christ that we would find peace in knowing that the Holy Spirit indwells us and knows, um, our, knows our every, uh, every corner of our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Whoa. Hi. <clears throat> Sorry, that was blunt. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we are in the, the section of the book called Dealing with the Hardest Emotions. And in this uh, section, you all should be able to tell me uh, what, uh, what you already have discussed. So I know one was fear. What else? Anger? Grief? So, first of all, who's been following along with the book? Okay. Um, who, who, like, roughly knows the outline of the book? Anyone who raised your hand, don't answer. So what do you think we're talking about today? What, what would, in your mind, you think, okay, these are the hardest emotions? Grief? Okay. Anger? Yep. Fear? What next? What's that? Judgment. Okay, actually, that relates. Yeah. Yep. Kim, you were about to say something. 
Anxiety, oh, that would be, well, I find it hard. That's, that's, that would definitely be one. Um, what else? Any other ideas? We gotta work to it, folks. Disappointment, shoot, they, they didn't have a big enough section, sorry. <laughs> Maybe we need to have an addendum. Today we're gonna be talking about guilt and shame. So, guilt and shame, <clears throat> Uh, is, is a topic that is near, if not dear, to all of our hearts. Um, it's, it's also one that is, is really sticky in many ways. And um, I know for me, uh, it's, uh, it's the source of anxiety. Uh, it's the source of fear. It's the source of judgment. Um, blame shifting, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but blame shifting is a big thing. I, I know that when I'm guilty... Uh, and I feel my guilt unresolved, um, I like to think about other people who have wronged me and kind of remind myself about how much that was terrible. And that's so, so there, there, there's a lot interweaved with, um, with guilt and shame. And, and one might think that in a libertine world that we live in, and we always like to say like our culture and everything, but let's be honest, this has been this has been true for ages. Uh, and one, one might think in this libertine world that, oh, well, it's only Christians or at least religious people that, that deal with guilt and shame. And yet, as R.C. Sproul would observe, and I think is, is absolutely true, um, guilt and shame is a universal experience. Uh, think about how many movies and books deal with topics of guilt and shame. Uh, War and Peace, I've not read it, but I have the benefit of being married to someone who's reading it. And, um, and I saw the miniseries, which was outstanding. Uh, but <clears throat> that is a book filled with characters who are working through guilt and shame and making tons of messes as they go. Uh, it's, a, it's a great character analysis, a great uh, uh, in-depth look at the inner workings of the heart, many of which are dealing with uh, the topics of guilt and shame. And R.C. Sproul points out that this is actually a really helpful starting point for apologetics. That you can, you can go to an unbeliever and know that you have a shared experience of feeling guilt. And you can ask them, why? Why do you feel guilt? And he argues that the reason why you feel guilt can be found in Scripture. And I think Paul would agree with him in Romans uh, 2. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So in light of that passage, why, why do we feel guilt? Um, well, the presence of guilt and shame point to two truths. And, and just as we start here, we want to think about the origins of guilt because, so we just had a sweet little baby girl, and when I, she's nameless, uh, when I look at her, there is sometimes a melancholy. And the melancholy is, is really centered around realizing that one day she's going to wrestle consciously with guilt and shame. And you, you, you would want to protect anyone from that feeling because it's, it's awful. 
Um, <clears throat> and yet, if we think about the origins, we realize that it's impossible. There's no protecting this child from, from guilt and shame. And, and I, I think we see, uh, we see the presence of guilt and shame pointing to these two truths. A, there is a standard, the law of God, which we know to be written on our hearts. B, we violated this standard. So the mere presence of a standard doesn't make us guilty. There will still be a standard in glory, and yet we'll be free of, of guilt because we've been washed. Um, <clears throat> there was a standard in the garden, and before man fell, they weren't guilty because they had not violated the law. So uh, the first four points, to summarize the first four points of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, um, it gives us a, a walk through the fall. So our first parents being seduced by Satan, sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. And again, I'm summarizing. Uh, by this sin, they fell from original righteousness and, importantly, communion with God, and so became dead in sin. Um, since Adam and Eve were the, the root of all mankind, their sin was imputed to all their posterity, descending from, descending from them by ordinary generation. In other words, that clause is to exclude Jesus. But everyone else who was not uh, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in a virgin, which means all of us, um, we have the sin of our first parents imputed to us. Furthermore, the original corruption left us, quote, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and is the source of all sins which you specifically commit. Um, so there's, uh, sorry, the, that, that last was not part of the quote, but that's the summary. Uh, so <clears throat> guilt, yes, is because of, of actual sins, sins that you and I have personally committed. But we also bear guilt because of our first parents. We, as mankind, have violated God's law. And so whether or not, whether we feel guilty for a specific thing, or you have that vague sense of guilt, it's because of sin. It's because of original sin. Um, <clears throat> so we can, we can look to the fall as the, the origins of guilt, but we can also look to the fall as the origins of shame. We'll talk a little bit about what the differences are later, but we can look at the garden for the origins of shame. Before the fall, the, imme the verse immediately preceding that account is Genesis 2.25. And it says that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I'm sure that there could be a whole lot more said on the symbolism around what, what it means to be for them to have been naked and unashamed. Um, at the very least, we know that it wasn't just a little trivia point. Ed Welch points, points this out. It's not just like a risque trivia point. Yay, they were naked and unashamed. There's way more weight to this. And we know that because of the immediately following passage. So it goes on <clears throat> uh, in, in the temptation of Eve. Uh, the serpent tells her, you will not surely get, die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Fast forward a few verses later. Their eyes were opened, but not opened in the way that they uh, might have hoped opened now with a new shame 
because of their fallen state. And we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. If you, this is conjecture, but just think of the, think of the desperation. Fig leaves do not great clothes make. And it even says loincloths. They didn't make like a dress and a suit. They scrambled together to just try to cover up whatever they could because suddenly they felt, they felt shame. And so shame, we, we see the introduction of shame with one another. But then it gets even worse. They, were, they weren't only ashamed in each other's presence, they were ashamed in God's presence. Uh, question 18 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell? And the answer begins, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God. Their shame, their guilt, caused them to lose communion with God, and they felt, I think we could say rightful shame before God, but that's not how it was intended to be. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. So while the, the word isn't expressly used, I think we can say in light of chapter 2, verse 25, that Adam and Eve's guilt caused them to be ashamed on account of their nakedness before both God and one another. So here we see the, the origins of, of shame. Well, consequently, because we live in a fallen world, as I go back to thinking about looking at my daughter and not wanting her to feel guilt and shame, I actually have to check myself there. Because the reality is, she is sinful. She will commit sin. And if I long for her not to feel guilt and shame, then there's something wrong. So, I don't know about you, but as I think about these topics, I would rather them be eradicated. I, I, I wrestle under the weight of guilt, and I, want the, I just want it to be gone. Um, and, and, and certainly, we, we sometimes want that to be gone for each other. But I think we have to start with a foundational principle as we learn to engage our guilt and shame. That for a limited purpose, or I should say for a very specific purpose, guilt and shame are good. Guilt and shame point us to the fact that, that there's something wrong. And our authors helpfully point uh, at highlight the relational aspect of this. Guilt and shame highlight that something is wrong between me and God, or me and my brother or sister in Christ, or, or not brother and sister in Christ, something between me and my fellow man, uh, and more than likely, both. Right? Because vertical problems always cause horizontal problems, and often horizontal problems are a result of vertical problems. <coughs> So, if we, if we think about not feeling guilty, uh, there would be, I mean, that would be a problem. Would everyone agree? If you, if you are guilty, and you commit sin, then you should feel guilty. And that's actually one of the hard things that I'm sure many in this room have experienced, talking with loved ones or friends that are unbelievers. You kind of have to convince them that they, 
that those feelings of guilt that they might have, or maybe those feelings of guilt that they've so long, so, so long suppressed, are real. Like, pay attention to the warning signs. You, you are guilty. Uh, similarly, as, as horrible and destructive as shame gone awry can be, everyone, I mean, the, the term shameless, we all know to be a, a pejorative. It's not good to be shameless. In fact, Proverbs 7.13 talks about the adulterous woman who is, again, the word isn't used, but she's described as boastful in her, uh, in her adultery. She, she's shameless about going out into the streets and seducing uh, uh, her, her lovers. Uh, or Psalm 52, the, the psalm that David writes after Doeg the Edomite slaughters uh, the priests at Nob on, a, on behalf of Saul. He, he describes him as a boastful man, a, a wicked man. There's no shame in him. So to be shameless uh, is wrong. And our authors uh, point out that there's a progression from guilt to shame. I don't, I don't think we could take this too woodenly, but it's also helpful to think that there's a progression where, where guilt, if guilt's not getting the job done, shame kicks in. And I think a, a poignant example would be when we're entrapped in private sin, sin that we think, well, this is really just about me. And suddenly we're caught in this sin, whatever that sin might be. Shame slaps us in the face. You know, we might have suppressed the guilt. We might have, uh, we might have you know, rationalized why it's okay to do this. But suddenly an outside person sees what's going on and it's 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 like you suddenly see it through their eyes and and you rightly feel shame it puts the brakes on and that's the purpose of shame shame should put the brakes on and drive us to god but the problem is guilt and shame um, are are often maybe i shouldn't say often but satan would long for guilt and shame to be uh, guests that overstay their welcome. Guilt and shame are meant to, uh, I didn't think about this analogy ahead of time, so this is dangerous, but I'm going to use it. Correct me if it's bad. Uh, <clears throat> guilt and shame are almost like commandos. They go in, th their intent is they're supposed to go in, they're supposed to get the job done, and then they're supposed to get out. But if we look at foreign affairs, when militaries stay in a country longer, it's not good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm tipping my hat to my own thoughts there. Uh, anyhow, so <clears throat> guilt and shame can't overstay their welcome. And so we need to learn how to uh, engage our, uh, our guilt and shame. So, so what are some of the, um, here are some questions for you to just ponder. The first one especially, this is not one you need to go and share right now. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but this is not one to go share right now. But just to ponder for a moment, and maybe even write down, <clears throat> what do you typically feel guilty about? What are the things that you typically feel guilty about? No need to share, just think about that for a moment. Or that you feel shame over. And this one, I'd love for you to, as you feel comfortable, chime in a little bit with. 
<clears throat> what do you do in response to your guilt and shame? What do you do in response to your guilt and shame? Okay, that's what we should do. We pray. What else? Seek counsel? Who said that? Awesome, good. What else? Yeah, <clears throat> so <clears throat> one of the reasons why guilt and shame can be challenging uh, <clears throat> is that there is a, there's an objective and there's a subjective component. So we already talked about the origins of guilt. Um, that points to the objective side of guilt. We and just a, a side note, like when you feel that vague sense of guilt, it's important to analyze it, but there's also a component at which you can say, I should probably just confess my general guiltiness to the Lord. Just run to the Lord. You don't wallow in, it's not that you wallow in it, nor do you just constantly try to like, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. No, just, just stop, just pray. God knows, <laughs> so just pray. Um, but there's, there's an objective component where we are guilty. Um, but there's a subjective component. And that subjective component is um, informed by the conscience, the, the, the vehicle, if you will, that causes us to feel guilt and shame would be our conscience. But as we've discussed in previous studies, your conscience has fallen as well. And your conscience can be misinformed. And you need to, you need to uh, train your conscience uh, with God's word. <clears throat> so as we engage uh, our guilt and shame, we, we, want to, we want to recognize, A, not every single feeling of guilt and shame is necessarily going to be true. You might feel guilty about something that God actually commands you to do because of the culture you grew up in. Um, you might feel shame for standing up for what's right because you get pressure from the outside. <clears throat> So we need, to, we need to train our consciences. We need to be alert. If I could uh, put it this way, like uh, 
Michelle brought up the idea of war. Uh, Thomas was talking about, you know, like not putting a bandaid on things. We need to lock horns. And I think that's kind of the theme of this whole book, right? As we look at our emotions, we need to lock horns with the emotions. We need to stare them in the face uh, and, and really analyze them and bring them to the Lord, um, particularly, not just leave it at a general. So, one aspect that uh, our authors highlight is that they can masquerade as different things. Um, guilt and shame can hide behind a mask of sorts. So <clears throat> another problem is that guilt and shame, uh, sorry, we already talked about that. Um, in addition to the problems of our, our guilt and shame sometimes being true, legitimate guilt, and sometimes being false, making it way more complex is that oftentimes it's all tangled up together. You think about a conversation you had with your child or your spouse or your friend or a coworker, and on one hand, do you ever do this? You're in a heated conversation and you walk away just kind of feeling, ugh, I just feel the like why do I ever have these conversations? Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> and then, but then like you're thinking about it more and you're like, well, no, that, to some extent this had to be said. But gosh darn it, why did I say it like that? And why did, why, did I, why did I respond to them in this way? And why was, why was that like self-righteousness welling up inside? And so our, our, our legitimate guilt is all mixed up with false guilt. And, and it's hard to pull them all apart. So amidst this confusion, though, our authors give us a really helpful metric to constantly ask ourselves, is this moving me away from God and others? or towards them? And I think that's a great question to always ask yourself as you're feeling, if you walk away from that guilt, uh, that, that conversation feeling, ugh, does that, does that draw you inward or towards God and others? Or maybe that's a, a bad example. As you deal with guilt and shame from past sin, uh, uh, some of which might be really horrible, is that guilt making you run to God and, and others, or is it causing you to isolate? Because Satan would love for you to run into a corner and, uh, and, and deal with it all on your own. Okay, so some of the, some of the masks that it can live behind. Uh, anger and bitterness. I think Saul's a great example of this. He has unresolved guilt because of a lot of things, uh, but he has unresolved guilt, and how does that express itself? Hurling spears at David out of envy, because David is everything that he wasn't. Um, so, so Saul didn't just have an anger problem. He had a guilt problem. He had not confessed and repented of his sin. Uh, it, might, it might be hatred of self, it might be a desire to, to self-harm. Or, you know, I think for me, maybe, you often think about people who love being drunk as just being party animals. Oh, they just want to be, you know, it's almost like you think that their desire for happiness is what leads them to that. But many aren't. Um, many people who want to be drunk and drugged all the time, uh, it's A, escapism, and B, full well knowing it's destroying their bodies and longing for that. 
It could be poor body image, um, difficulty in, in, in wanting fellowship and intimacy with, with other believers. Um, it could be uh, a, 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 a guilt-driven service to exhaustion or giving far beyond what might be wise for your bank account, not out of joy, not out of trust that God's going to refill that account, not out of trust that God's going to, to, to fill you with energy, but out of this like frenetic uh, sense of I have, to, I have to atone for what I've done or I have to um, busy myself so that I can ignore the, the crushing feelings of, of guilt and shame. So be aware of the fact in your own hearts and in the lives of others that you might not just look at that person and think, oh, they feel ashamed. Um, it could be hiding behind something else. And just like with medical uh, and, and health issues, if you only look at the symptom without digging deeper, um, you may not actually address the problem. And, uh, and that cancer might actually eat away. So we have to be, we have to be discerning as we analyze our own hearts and as we look at the hearts of others. So um, just to give a, a brief example um, of, of shame. So we see in scripture examples of shame that are legitimate, which we already saw uh, in, in Adam and Eve. Um, but we see examples of shame that are illegitimate as well. Uh, and, and a tragic example would be the account of Amnon and Tamar. And if you remember, Amnon is one of David's sons, and he lusts after his beautiful half-sister, Tamar. Whole course of events are orchestrated, disgustingly orchestrated, to give him opportunity to realize his lust. He, he rapes her, and then immediately... The, the, the text says that he hates her with a hatred that was stronger than his love for her, which I think gives the lie to the love that he felt. And then the, the, the saddest part in that story is after begging him not to double down on his, on his wickedness and being cast out, uh, Tamar goes, tears her clothes, puts sackcloth and ashes on, and then we read uh, that she lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. She wasn't the one that should have felt ashamed of that situation. Amnon should have been decisively and immediately judged for his sin and Tamar vindicated. And yet we see her living in desolation under the weight of this shame. <clears throat> so we see in scripture that you can, you can have shame that is completely illegitimate. And, and we need the gospel uh, to, to, to weigh that out. So in, in uh, David Pollison's book, Good and Angry, he has a chapter on self-anger. And he asks the question, whose ladder are you climbing? And he gives three options. You could be climbing your own ladder. You've laid down laws for yourself, standards. Um, you, maybe you said that you would never, ever, ever take on debt. And your car broke down. You, you buy a car on a loan because you have no other option, and now you're, you're like just barely making those payments. And you think, you feel guilty because, well, 
Responsible people aren't in debt. Responsible people keep on top of their payments. Responsible people don't feel like they're, they're, they're hand to mouth all the time. That is a self-standard. There are no promises in scripture that we're going to have ready funds available. Um, there's no command in scripture that you do not go into debt. Um, there's wisdom, but there's no command that you not. So this, that's, a, that's a ladder that you're climbing. And if you're under the weight of that, as, as if it's guilt, then, then that's your own ladder. You could be under someone else's ladder. It's a cliche in detective movies. Cops don't tell on cops, right? Uh, and if you do, well, you're, you're gone. Um, or, but that, that same dynamic can happen in any tight-knit group, right? Um, you, you, don't, you don't take our family problems to someone else. No, 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 no. We, we deal with those internally. How dare you think to do that? Or uh, uh, an elder stands for an opposing view on a session, and the rest of this that is scriptural, and the rest of the session kind of pushes him off. Or, um, I mean, politicians, name it. A friend. This, is, this happens a lot. A, friend, a close friend group, the hangout, one of them starts to be convicted of, of maybe they're not using their time well. Uh, maybe they're not really pursuing holiness together and starts asking uncomfortable questions. Well, guess who doesn't get invited to the next party? <laughs> um, so those are someone else's ladders. And you, you might feel guilty like, wow, I rocked the boat. I'm told to be at peace with all men. Well, as far as it's possible. It's not always possible to be at peace with all men. So you can be climbing someone else's ladder. Or is it God's ladder? Are you looking at pornography, cheating in, on your wife, stealing from your company, cheating on your taxes, harsh with your children, just accustomed to lying? That's God's ladder. And if you're feeling guilty for those things, good. <laughs> and actually, if you're feeling guilty for those things, you can praise God. This all ties back, by the way, with... Um, with the, the thankfulness book. There's a sense in which we can give thanks when we feel guilt and shame because if it's God's ladder that we're climbing and we feel guilt and shame because we violated something, that means that God hasn't turned his face away from you. That means that he's still holding on to you. The, the phrase, the hound of heaven, is barking at your heels and <laughs> get down and hug the hound. <clears throat> but again, these things can go awry. And again, Satan would love for you to stay in the shadows. It's almost like, a, almost imagine one of these predators that live in a den. And they take their prey and they kind of back up with their prey deeper and deeper into the cave. When I was, uh, when I was little, we would stay at my grandparents' house. And I remember vividly one time getting up in the night to go to the bathroom, TMI. Uh, but... I looked down the hallway and was paralyzed. Still had to go to the bathroom, but I was paralyzed because I saw a man in a trench coat on the other end of the hallway, and he was staring at me, refusing to move. And we both stood looking at each other for the longest time. And I don't remember how, but I made it into the bathroom, in the bathroom completely freaking out because somehow I have to get in the hall again to go to my room. I don't remember how I ended up in my room again. But anyhow, it was terrifying. And the next morning, I woke up and found that the man had apparently left 
his suit neatly hung up at the end of the hallway. I don't know why. He must have been running around naked or something because he was there the night before. But the lights were on and I realized, oh, this is, this is, uh, this was nothing. Um, now, we need to turn the lights on as it concerns our guilt and shame because Satan would long for it to be otherwise. Now, sometimes you'll turn the lights on and it might be just that, a shadow that disappears into the night. It was someone else's ladder, it was your own ladder, but you need the lights on to show that was nothing. Or you'll find, no, no, that, that man was real. That man was very real, but when you turn the lights on, you realize, oh, his head is crushed in because of your savior. The, you can't stay in the shadows. So how do we move out of the shadows? Prayer. Prayer, we move towards God and we move towards his people. We do exactly the opposite of what Satan would want us to do with our guilt and shame. So first with prayer, if you feel, do you feel guilt and shame but don't know why? Well, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God will, God will work through you. You don't know when, but he will search your heart. He will give clarity to those vague icky feelings. Um, do you know the sin that you, that you committed and you feel, feel guilty and ashamed? Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and look at the hope that he has, the, the, the confidence that he has. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Are you plagued by false guilt and shame? Vindication is something legitimate to pray for. We heard that in a sermon several weeks ago in, in Psalm 7. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in, that is in me. If you feel guilt and shame because of someone else's ladders, you can pray for, for vindication. You can pray that, that God would see, again, it's not your, your total righteousness, it's not your, your God righteousness, but in that context, you were right to confront your friends. In that context, you were, you were right to go for help. <clears throat> Have you confessed your sin and turned from it, but you still feel that, that guilt clinging to you. Um, well, you can remind yourself, as Paul says in, in Romans 5, that the hope of the glory of God does not put us to shame because God's love, that's a piecing things together here, but the hope um, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has, who has been given to us. If you've, if you've turned, if you've actually looked to Jesus, uh, you're you're, you're like one in the wilderness looking to the serpent lifted on the pole. You're, you're, you're clean. And you, you hope, knowing that that hope will not put you to shame in the final day. Does that mean that it'll immediately wash away? No, but you just keep looking. You keep pressing on. And importantly, you move towards others. And I think especially with guilt and shame, you have to talk to people. It's absolutely imperative that you, you 
you act in faith, trusting that God answers your prayers that you've already done, and you step out in faith by going to his people. And there are commands in God's word about this. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You have to go and talk to people. That passage gives us, uh, gives us exhortations both on the receiving end, because we need to be safe people to whom our brothers and sisters can, can bring these, these things. We have to um, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, recognizing that we too can be tempted, but it's fulfilling the law of Christ when we bear one another's burdens. So are we doing that when we feel guilt and shame? Do we move towards people? James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You have to pray. But it's not that you pray and maybe go and talk to people. You pray, and you move towards Christian fellowship. Um, yes, you need, you need to have wisdom and discernment of who you talk to, but it's not, it's not you should pursue that. It's, you don't wait until someone just stumbles there. You should be praying that God would put someone in your life if you don't have that. You should be feeling things out, testing the grounds. Is this person... Not someone who's just going to coddle me, but is this someone who loves God's word? Is this someone who's going to uh, restore me with gentleness? And our authors, I think, really helpfully point out that to some extent, we'll never totally know that. But it's, it's trusting God when we go and, and, and make that step. So ultimately, the remedy is found in the promises of God. That's what we cling to as we pray. The promises of God. Zephaniah, on that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Um, Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he, think back on the origins of shame. They were naked and unashamed. What happened? Their eyes were opened. And they were ashamed before one another and before God. But then we read in Isaiah 61, For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What a, what a beautiful full circle from the garden to being clothed in Christ, Christ's righteousness. We're no longer exposed in our own filth. A, we're washed, and B, we're clothed in Christ. It's, it's magnificent. And we do so by faith. Again, Westminster Confession um, concludes point two of the chapter on saving faith. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Did you see all the works you have to do in there? No. Isn't it, isn't it just like cool water to hear those words? How do we accept, how do we, what are the principal acts of faith? Accepting, receiving, and resting. 
And that's, that's what we're here day, today to, to remind ourselves of. We're to rest. We're to receive the forgiveness of Christ. If you're struggling, if you're struggling to feel forgiven, repent of that and rest anew in the forgiveness you have in Christ Jesus. There's a, a modification or a, a, a updated version, if you will, of the Charles Wesley's hymn, Arise My Soul Arise from Indelible Grace. And the chorus uh, in, in one of the one of the choruses, sorry, um, is Arise My Soul Arise, shake off your guilty fears and rise. And and, and that's that's what we need to do as we go to worship. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the promises you give us in your word. We thank you that as heavy as these are, you these, these topics of guilt and shame, as real as some of the guilt that we feel is, as, as crushing as some of the shame that we feel may be, whether false or legitimate, your word, your promises are still a balm to our soul. We still have confidence in knowing that, that our identity is found in Christ Jesus, which means that our past sins are, are dealt with. And it means that the, the false ladders that we seek to climb can fade away. And I pray that as we go to worship you, that we would have hearts of, of thankfulness and joy as we accept the, the gifts that you have given us. I pray that we would forget not all of your benefits and that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.